Okay, Thomas, who are you? Let's just start there. Yeah, my name is Thomas Varkey. I'm a fourth-year medical student at Fidel Medical School in Austin, Texas. I'm an adjunct professor at the Quantrill College of Business. I teach uh, business management courses such as organizational behavior management, global business, or strategic management. Kind of the last courses you take in the business degree. Um, I served as a faculty member for the National MS Society, and I am a scientific writer. You can read several of my publications. Just Google uh, Thomas C. Varkey, and one of them pops up. Are there any other identities that you associate yourself with? Um, I like to imagine that I'm a philosopher. In fact, I joke that if uh, philosophy paid better, I would do that because it would allow me to walk, talk, and think all day. I mean, the famous picture of Socrates talking with Plato as he walks through the uh, Lyceum is probably one of my favorite ones. Um, very similar in nature to Charcot and uh, the lecture of the self-inquiry. Great, great paradox, by the way. But yeah, I'd have to say I'm probably a philosopher at heart. Do you identify at all as an athlete? How much running do you do these days? Three to five miles every day. I stop for a short period because it turns out it's impossible to help somebody with their parenting homework while running at six o'clock at night in the dark in a park without falling over and injuring my ankles. So you prior? Oh, so you injured yourself? Yeah. Okay, it wasn't a shift in priorities. It was a shift in your ability to run for the moment. Yeah. Ah, I get that. So I had to take a break the last two weeks. Um, my girlfriend was, she's made fun of me and then like proceeded to baby me for the last like <laughs> two weeks. Uh... But three or four miles a day, that's a lot of running. Yeah. I enjoy running. There's, it's, it's moving meditation, a chance to decompress from the day. Oftentimes, especially with the work I do, um, you're constantly thinking you're on your feet all the time and they're not like productive thoughts. They're usually little bits and pieces that'll pop in such as, oh, I need to make sure that I dose the patient's acetophil according to her kidney function advisor or oh, if I don't go and talk to the social worker, she won't see this note until tomorrow morning, which means she won't get started, which means the patient will be here an additional day or two. And so those are less important thoughts. And so by running, I get a chance to clear my headspace and think about the things I want to think about. I've had some of my most brilliant ideas for either research papers or other um, major thoughts, either while dancing. I like to uh, shuffle dance. Or while running. So that's why I run at night. I've seen a lot of authors are like that. They'll go run up a hill, and then suddenly at the top, they'll have a big insight into whatever paragraph they've been working on for that yeah. month or whatever. It's a beautiful concept. I'm currently writing a paper on uh, hiccups and uh, the cure for hiccups using a new neurologic method. Elliot showed it to me. Mm-hmm. And so Elliot, Teresa, and I are going to be authors on this with a new method. It's kind of spread like wildfire. How does it work? Well, what you do is think about the diaphragm. It's a giant muscle, right? And it's like a parachute, it goes down, and that creates a negative inspiratory pressure, negative pressure. And because the outside has a pressure of one atmosphere, obviously, one atmosphere, it like pushes the air into your lungs. And then when the diaphragm relaxes, there's no longer that negative inspiratory pressure, and so the air rushes out. Right. In, out, in, out. When you hiccup, the diaphragm and the intercostal muscles just fire randomly, and the, the larynx closes, and so you go, 
again as the larynx closes. Normal people, you get like three or four of those and it's over. And some people, it lasts upwards of 48 hours and it's called persistent hiccups. Mm. Some people, it lasts upwards of two months and that's called intractable hiccups. That's very annoying. Can you imagine trying to sleep through that? I can't. But now it's tractable? So what you do is you press on the tragus of the ear in and out, in and out, in and out. Press something through a straw. Now it looks like this. And because there's this feedback from the mandibular root of the trigeminal nerve, and because there's this sucking pressure coming in, it causes the entire system to reset. Wow. Totally bonkers. I'll have to try it the next time I have hiccups. Yeah. So you're going to read to me a letter that you wrote, or a speech that you gave to yeah, where? Can you give the backstory on this? So I was president of the Alpha Chi uh, Society. Um, I was president of the Alpha Chi Society here at, uh, at Grand Canyon University. And I wrote this actually as part of a speech. We were talking about um, the conjoinedness of humanity and like the, the mission, vision of uh, where we need to be so, as president, it was my job to give that particular speech. And so, I wrote this while kind of jotting down my thoughts, and I left it in a journal, and I like, totally forgot about it. And it was probably the most profound thought I've had at the time. And so, like I actually sent it this morning, um, we have one enemy, a disease, part of one family, the human family. We share one emotion various forms we are human beings we need to be better every day there's no place in at least in my mind there's no place for ego for having to be correct for this insatiable stupidity that is war we've got enough problems as it is the universe doesn't give one crap about you it couldn't care less there's so many things left to kill you. Why do we have to fight each other? Death needs to die. And I would be very glad to be the first one to say that. How has your view on the meaning of life changed since you wrote that speech, if at all? I think that was actually the beginning of the change in my idea of the meaning of life. Um, I don't think life has a particular meaning. I think it's similar in nature to events, right? In what way? So... When you dance with your friends at a, at a party, and you're mm-hmm. conjoined by you know, conga line or uh, bahava nagila, right? You're not really purposefully doing anything for any reason, right? It's a dance of enjoyment. And I think the purpose of life that we often like have struggled, either philosophically, metaphorically, etc., miss the damn point. Life isn't about becoming something, it's about existing. Joining the dance with others, people cycle in and out of that dance. But life itself is that moment. It's a very Buddhist idea. It really Do you agree is. that life is not about desiring, or at the very least, desiring is the source of suffering in life. Mm-hmm. If you can separate the future from the now, separate the wanting from the liking, then you'll have more gratitude in life, like more happiness in life. That's the beauty of people in the recovery community. If you ever get a 
chance, I highly recommend that you make it to an open meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. I would love to go. Truly. Those people are probably some of the most spiritual people you'll ever meet. One of the most spiritual men I've ever met was a man who's been sober from heroin for exactly five months. And he looked at wow. me dead in the eyes and he said, Thomas, the reason I say I'm sorry, the reason I admit my faults fast and work to change them is if I don't, my addiction's in the parking lot doing push-ups, waiting for me to beat the crap out of me and take me back out to the streets absolutely do you think some people are predisposed to having addictions in their life whether well it's certainly certainly they can be conditioned to it either through some trauma they experience or through the environment in which they grew up or come to know in high school or beyond but i mean more genetically speaking are there people who on a neurological level are predisposed to addictive behaviors. We know this to be a fact already. Okay. ADHD is well known to be a uh, predisposing factor to addiction. They find themselves being drawn to anything that increases dopamine in their circuitry. And that means any of the hardcore illicit drugs, alcohol, tobacco. If interventions are not met early, many of these children that have uh, attention deficit disorder or attention deficit hyperactivity disorder attention they, they will find themselves either in an institution working to get sober in an institution in the military because it's they need the strictness rules to keep themselves okay in the grave because they killed themselves from an overdose or from something stupid and then finally They'll find themselves in some place like that in Alcoholics or Narcotics Anonymous. It's not entirely their fault, right? They were born with a bent dopamine receptor, and as a result, they're working to increase that amount of dopamine. I mean, this is the kid that's shaking his hands in the middle of you know, class as a six-year-old. This is the child that's pretending to play the piano because that's the only way they can pay attention. I'm going to try to verbalize a thought here, and I'm sure I'm going to get it wrong. But there's an addiction expert named Gabor Mate who likes to say, don't ask why the addiction, ask why the pain. I think I'm getting that quote wrong. But basically the question that he's posing is, when considering somebody who has an addiction, what's the pain they're trying to cover up with that addiction? What's happening prior to their life that's fueling whatever insecurities leading them to that addiction. And so if I tried to relate this to neurobiology, I might say that somebody that's experienced trauma, and this is where I'm conjecturing, would have a lower tonic dopamine level because, and this is manifested in their lack of self-advocacy, their feeling that they're not worthy, feeling that they're worthless, so to say. And that they're trying to cover up that dopamine deficiency the same way somebody with ADHD tries to cover up their lower tonic baseline levels of dopamine. Does and that I, make any semblance of sense? That makes a semblance of sense. The problem is proving it, mm -hmm. right? So this is where Koch's postulates come in. I, I'm not about, so Koch was a fairly famous microbiologist who took a bunch of bacteria 
heat kill that, right? To see what, if you took the bacteria out of one mouse that was causing it to be very ill, and injected it into another mouse, would it get sick? And the answer was yes. Mm -hmm. And then he did it again, this time with heat killed bacteria, to see if those particular bacteria could pick up the, these separate bacteria could pick up the evil, bad trait that killed the mouse. And the answer was yes, also. Proving that both the principle of transduction, that bacteria can pick up outside genetic material and pull it into their bodies, and proving also that the bacteria were the cause of the illness. Koch's postulates were fulfilled. The idea being, if you have a healthy person, you give them, say, poison, they then become ill, you take away the poison, do they become better? Right. So I can't just go around traumatizing people. <laughs> I mean, you could, you could. It's highly unethical and highly frowned upon, you know? Can you measure doping levels in people's brains? You can. It's a DAT scan. It's not very specific, but right. it's not very useful. I mean, we use it in Parkinson's disease. And uh, if you talk to movement specialists like that, of Dr. Eric Krauss or others, they'll say the DAT scan's kind of useless, right? The symptoms alone should tell you. So you could, with the technology, isn't all the way up to date. But we don't have enough um, imaging power just yet. How do people in medical school learn about dopamine and other neurotransmitters? I imagine you take a class in neuroscience. Yeah. One, two. It's multiple. usually it's usually a singular course and then a rotation in neurology. Okay. And what does that course look like? So it's a, your neuroanatomy and physiology. Some people will call it brain and behavior. Others will call it something like medical neuroscience, something along those lines. And what it is, it's a very clinically focused course where we talk about the different anatomical structures of the brain, such as that of the amygdala, the hippocampus. We talk about the different pathways in the brain, such as that of the Niagara striatal pathway, um, maybe the mesolimbic pathway. Mm -hmm. And you tie together the actual normal functionality and then the different disease states you can see. So Niagara striatal, I bring it up because it's the famous Parkinson's the substantia nigra, or the black substance, gets destroyed. We're still unsure why, but it gets destroyed. And as the dopamine levels drop in the brain, the person begins to show the classic signs of Parkinson's, which is remembered by the name of track. The tremor, the resting tremor, the uh, cognitive rigidity, rigidity, the akinesia, or bradykinesia, the inability to start moving, and then the postural instability, i.e. they fall down. Also remember the statement from House of God, a terrible book. Um, Gomer goes to Gilead. The idea being that anyone who's unstable, i.e. a Parkinson's patient, will fall down mm. and have to be transported to Gilead. Let me motivate the following question by just telling the listeners, I've already told you this, that I've kind of fallen down the rabbit hole on dopamine. Mm -hmm. To the extent that I feel almost overwhelmed now by the amount of information there is to consume. You can read dozens or hundreds of papers on dopamine. I've read a couple of books on the subject. And I wouldn't say it feels like an insurmountable obstacle to understand the human brain. Of course, 
that understanding is continuing even when the experts in the field. But I find myself wondering if you have any recommendations for books that I could read or resources online that somebody who's interested in learning neuroscience should go to, whether that's dopamine specific or just neurology in general. If you want to learn neuroanatomy, you want to learn it like doctors do. Mm-hmm. The thing you should go and read is you should read uh, Neuroanatomy the Ridiculously Simple. It's a really tiny little book. It's blue. I uh, actually loaned it to a mutual friend of ours, Ian Karakalan. <laughs> and great little book. I think he still has it, actually. Well, that sounds consistent with Ian's behavior. Um, great book. And it's made to be kind of stupidly easy to remember uh-huh. so that you have a nice baseline. Remember, the peer-reviewed literature is going to be dense. It's people like Dr. Elliot Perlman, Dr. Stephen Valletta, Dr. Peter Calabrese, going toe-to-toe, trying to find the newest, greatest, latest thing that can help your patient, or the newest, greatest, latest thing that explains the physiology ever so slightly better. They already have the baseline. They went through the training, they read things like this, and so they assume you already know, and they skip over all the basic details, which is probably the reason why Pearson should manage a book. His book will give you a nice foundation, and then everything else makes sense. Perfect. I appreciate it. Yeah. You know that episode of Rick and Morty where there's a little robot that passes the butter uh-huh. to Rick, and the robot asks, what's my purpose? <laughs> What is my purpose? You pass butter. Oh. <laughs> exactly. As somebody who's not religious, I find myself asking, what's my purpose often? Mm-hmm. How do you come up with an answer to that? I sit in the same camp as you. I'm not religious myself. And so I would have to say that the answer to that particular question is, is I make up my own purpose. I... Remember, I was at my parents' home. I was kind of hungover. I'd had a really terrible night. And I remember coming to my senses and saying, I will never be so disrespected ever again. And I chose in that moment both my purpose and my pain. I have a really, really, really sad group of friends. I couldn't think that they all are going to disappoint me. And so my, like, threshold for impressivity is People still disappoint me. And I ask myself, how? Right? It's that mm-hmm. episode of the middle where the kid goes, I expect nothing, and I'm still disappointed. That. Um, Why do you think that you expect so little from people? Well, I think most of it came from the fact that people have gone out of their way over and over again to demonstrate the worst of each other. Whether that's... Um, People who make big, grandiose statements of wanting to help each other, only to be followed by, oh, you know, you just really like the money. Oh, see, I don't like that. Take, for example, insulin. The initial patent was sold for a dollar. The gift of the dollar is money. They charge $100 a dose. What the heck is wrong with you, dude? They sold it for a dollar. I set my baseline 
result, I'm very easily impressed. Right? Which explains all the compliments you give me. Yeah, and everyone else. You're you're one of the best humans I've ever met. Well, that counts. Yeah, you're you're really cool. You care about humans, and that's hard to find because they legitimately disappoint me on a regular basis. That being said. My purpose in life, I've often said, is that of the paraclete. Paraclete, meaning the he who runs alongside. You ever watch that movie, Hercules, with the little goat guy? I am retired! Can't say I have. Ah, what a shame. Um, the paraclete is the trainer. It is oftentimes a retired athlete who would run alongside the person that was training for the Olympics at the time. They would train you for four years. And as he would be training you, he'd say, I'm retired and I'm running faster than you. I'm retired, I can lift more than you. What do you mean you can't throw that far? I've, I haven't done this in 10 years and I can throw farther than you. It's just constantly like antagonizing you. And you're like, what? What's, what's this guy's problem? And then when you actually succeed because he was helping you the whole time, you just weren't paying attention got this big stupid smile on his face it's like I knew you could do it that's how I see my purpose you want to be the paraclete for people in general people in general people in your practice both the people I help as patients and the people that I help as friends anyone who kind of stumbles on my path and I have quite a few mentees I've picked up over the years people who like would come to me for advice or talk to um Yesterday is a good example. I started getting phone calls at 8 a.m., like 10 minutes after I woke up. Um, I would get them in between patient calls and in between traveling to different clinical sites. And then uh, I didn't stop until 1.30 at night. You're a good person, Thomas. I appreciate that. But I think that it's just me fulfilling my role and hanging out and doing my thing and encouraging people. Sometimes I need a little bit extra encouragement. Last night I was talking with a friend of mine. She uh, she feels really bad because she's working on getting her feet in the market. And uh, she was talking about how she was a failure. She's unable to make it. And this is really hard. And I told her I said, I guess the anxiety talking in the job interview very hard on getting into your ideas right now. And I might not compliment you to your face all the time because you and I are working on things. But at the end of the day, I'm really proud of all the efforts you've made over the last six years. Were you always so supportive as a person? Well, I know we've discussed that you're on the spectrum for autism. Mm -hmm. Did that manifest differently whenever you were younger than it does today? Yeah, actually. Um, before the age of 20, I used to think most people were kind of stupid. Because I try and explain things to them. I try and be like, why are you like this? Um, like, for instance, is um, I watched, uh, I would watch my dad try and cut bread with a butter knife. And I'd be like, it was a logical failure. Why did we do it wrong? How can we not do this again? And that kind of behavior, that kind of mindset oftentimes made me into kind of a, what people would call a dick. But it was because I cared about it. So I found better ways to demonstrate the same caring and love. 
always had to forgive at a certain aspect. With regards to autism, we talked about, I guess probably months ago, but what the neurobiology of it was. And I remember you saying something along the lines of the dopamine circuitry being altered. Yeah, so there's... the picture appears to be a little bit more complex based on the research that I've done. Mm-hmm. I'd love to hear your thoughts on, you know, being as educated as you are and having a personal experience with it, where you're at right now with your understanding. So when we're talking about the autism spectrum, you're really talking about a number of diseases. So I'm, I'm while I sit on the autism spectrum, I'm Asperger's disorder. And so it's ever so slight. I view the world a little bit differently than most people do when we look at things in I find myself being able to focus very quickly on topics and on um, objects, and I can multitask fairly well. I joke that I have eight tracks running at all times in my head. Usually, they're running failure-mode, like, what's going wrong? How can I fix this? How can I prevent uh, further problems? But that being said, that is probably more likely a dopaminergic thing, where I have a little bit of a higher base tenacity. Um, whether you have uh, phenylketonuria or other disorders that would put you on the autism spectrum, that would be a different thing. And that's the reason why it's very complex. Usually when there's a word disorder associated with something, right, uh, such as down, uh, syndrome, Down's syndrome, we don't fully understand the cause. And we just kind of lump it together based on symptoms. Autism spectrum is one of those. Help me understand something. With ADHD, the baseline is lower than normal, mm-hmm. and that leads people to be hyperactive. You're right. saying with your particular situation, your baseline is higher than normal, and that also leads you to be more energetic. Not more energetic. I would say more... I, I, I like to sit a lot. I like to think a lot. I like to... When I'm doing things, it's just because I have more energy to get done. But like my actual like thinking processes run faster than joke I used to tell is I'll uh, think you and oftentimes he'll figure out what you're about to do like do your things before you figured out what you were going to do you're also a very curious person mm-hmm. how much does boredom bother you I don't mind boredom but I have to have a real reason if you want to kill me make me wait in line I actually started counting the ants when I visited Knott's Berry Farm because I was stuck in line for half an hour to ride the train somewhere. And I remember staring my girlfriend in the eyes and saying, why do you hate me? Why did you take me here? <laughs> Yikes. Um, yeah, no. I hate amusement parks. God, pointless waiting. Pointless boredom. Um, whereas, if it's very purposeful, so I have a stoic practice. I used to practice once a month where I lay on the floor completely still. I eat nothing but really stale bread and really like waters when sitting in front of this. And this was to reset my kind of baseline of mindset. For how long? 24 hours. Okay. I've heard of a number of practices like that. One man, I think there's a week where he just sleeps on the floor and eats beans and oatmeal. That's his deal. I think it's a good practice. I've taken up the habit of wearing only black shirts. Hmm. Well, unless it's a special occasion, but for the most part, I just bought these 
nine black t-shirts. You know, I'll dress up with a jacket occasionally. Bump around that, but simplicity is nice and it's much more efficient. So you, let's say you come home and you're going to entertain yourself somehow. What's your go-to source of media? I know you like YouTube videos, but you'll do history stuff. But you're also on Instagram, and clearly you read a lot. Yeah, so it really depends on what I'm feeling for the day. If I'm looking for more intellectual stimulation, which does happen from time to time, I'll go and I'll start either reading or writing. Hmm. I get a thrill out of thinking through a problem and thinking through it well. So one of my most recent papers that's under peer review is at the Journal of Perspectives on Medical uh, Medical Education. And this particular paper is non-useful. They talk about logical heuristics. Oftentimes people will quote the Bader-Meinhof phenomenon when talking about the relative um, rate at which a disease occurs. Bader-Meinhof being the idea that rare things are always rare, and just because you've heard about it, now you're looking for it, i.e., there's only a certain number of yellow cars that we can find. Just because you know about yellow cars means you're not looking for them. And that's why they all of a sudden popped up in your head. Like swan phenomenon. Yeah. Whereas on the other side, I uh, wrote this paper called Mongoose Phenomena. It's actually an idea of uh, mine and the name came from a buddy of mine in Barbados. Mongooses live between the tropic of Cancer and the tropic of Capricorn. They're really, really common animals. They eat like rats and snakes and all that stuff. But most of the time, people have never seen them, even though they're super common. The reason why is you weren't looking. They're just sitting over there doing their little mongoose thing, rolling in the dirt, eating the snake, you know, doing a mongoose thing. But because you're not looking, you'll never see them. And we wrote this paper as kind of a response because I heard for the millionth time, when you hear the beating of hooves, Thomas, don't think zebras. And I like looked at the guy and I was like, MS was one time considered very rare, and they invented the MRI machine. Not looking so you don't see it. So, when I entertain myself, it's usually just kind of based off of whatever I'm thinking about right before I have uh, more recently, uh, I got into I'm doing some uh, arm exercises. I, I've got a really nice runner's body, like decent leg and decent core, but I got these tiny little stick arms. And it's kind of embarrassing because, like, if you look at your doctor and he kind of looks like he's a tiny little man, you probably won't think very much of him. So I want a swole doctor. You want a swole Absolutely, doctor? yes. Yeah. So, we've been going to the gym to try and work on my arms. Even if it's a neurologist, I still want a swell doctor. It doesn't matter. You want a swell doctor. The peak peak of health, right? Not saying that doing biceps is the peak of health, but surely you're doing other things other than just arms. Yeah. Yeah, I'm getting there to do some full body workout. That sounds awesome. Yeah, the, the old joke at the hospital is... Uh, best doctor to take care of you is actually the one that looks really, really unhealthy. Because that means all he does is study. So he knows his stuff. Whereas the super healthy fit one probably isn't that bad. I've recently picked up the habit of drinking coffee. One or two cups a day. And 
I'm intrigued to know as a medical student, how much coffee do you drink? Oh, okay, Auntie, that's the worst question. I am on the far end of the bell curve. Like, Which end? The far super right. Like, we're talking... <laughs> we're talking... We've ordered, so, we've far thrown out, out the window. I mean, you hear the little kids screaming as, like, I throw the little giraffe out the window. Um, far end of the right end of the spectrum. Um, I drink two gallons of coffee. That's a lot of coffee, Thomas. That's a lot of coffee. That might be why your uh, tonic dopamine levels are so high. Well, my tonic dopamine levels have remained high. I started drinking more and more coffee um, just because I liked the way it made me feel. There's a little fuzzy feeling you get at the front of your head. I have never experienced that feeling from too much coffee. You gotta drink more. Drink more of it. All right. What kind do you drink? Oh, I get community coffee. It's a breakfast blend. And you can pick it up at the Sam's Club. It's like $15 for a big old bag. I've got one right there. Okay. Oh, yeah, you drink old man coffee. Hey! You, <laughs> you drink, like, Folgers. <laughs> this is the stuff that my grandpa drinks. Comes in a red bag. Comes in a red bag. Well, you see, like, I tried some of that foo-foo stuff. And uh, if any of your listeners actually care, buy Tiny House Coffee. It's a Dell Med student who owns it. She's a sweetheart. Her name is Helen Schaefer. Um, do as I say, not as I do. Um, but, yeah, I drink old man coffee. Um, it's the one I can buy at the Sam's Club for like $15. And I like the way it tastes because I do like drinking it. Can you just make a gallon of it in the morning and drink yeah. it throughout the day? I see a number of coffee mugs over there. Yeah, I chug, uh, I chug two or three liters of Wow. Do you sleep all right? Yeah. I sleep. So my normal baseline sleep is anywhere from four to six hours, and that was before the coffee, and I still sleep four to six hours now. That would not be enough sleep for me. I mean, I could do it, but I wouldn't feel good. Oh, I feel amazing. It's, uh, I still get up and dance. Uh, I was down at the pizza place uh, off of South Congress with my uh, girlfriend, the other day and they were playing some of my electro dance music and I started shuffle dancing and it was like 11 o'clock <laughs> at night. I believe it. Knowing you, I absolutely believe it. Oh, it was so great. And then the waitress was like, oh, you're a shuffler too? And she started shuffling with me. It was so amazing. You called yourself a philosopher. You are many things, but you called yourself a philosopher. Who are your favorite philosophers? Who do you like to read? So I recently got on a Voltaire kick. And the reason for Voltaire was because he said one of the most profound sentences in all of human writing. Hit me with it. So the guy at the end of the book can be right. And he's being provocative. I mean, this is Voltaire. Voltaire, the fancy Frenchman. Right? He's an enlightenment thinker. He's kind of a dick. He's a gambler. And when he's writing, he wants to piss people off. So he has his guys in the city of Istanbul. And they're just outside the city of Istanbul. And one of the muftis dies. And the mufti is the advisor to the ruler of Istanbul. One of the muftis dies. And they're like talking about the fact that the mufti is dead. And Voltaire introduces this character called Voltaire. Doesn't even give him a name. Okay? Doesn't give this guy a name. This is where you like start to hear the kind of insanities that is Voltaire. 
and he like dead ass is they're talking to the Turk and they're like, What do you think of the death of the Mukti? And they like and he's like, I don't care. You see, I live here with my garden. I take care of it. I eat the produce of it. And this is then where the most profound sentence in the whole damn book comes. For we must all tend to our own garden. Period. End of book. That's a mic drop right there. Holy crap, it comes right out of the mouth of a Turk. This is Catholic France, 1700s. Voltaire, you sly dog. The hell is wrong with you? And I fell in love with that idea. It's the idea of, I don't care about the politics of the world. Whether you're talking about the Donald Trumps, the Joe Bidens, or the Joe Blows, I don't care. They don't affect me. But you know what does? My neighbor Nick, that lives next door. My friend Grant writing in Texas for a thousand years ago. My girlfriend. Who needs special attention today? Those are the people that matter. My brother John, who lives in Indiana. I have to tend to my own garden. I have to make sure my weeds have been plucked. I don't water my plants. You don't water your plants. Those little peas are going to die. When they die, you can't fix them. So a lot about you as to what you consider your garden. I can imagine other people would say, my own garden is my body. I need to take care of it. I need to get that six-pack. Or my own garden is my work. I need to take care of my law firm. Whatever the case might be. But for you, your garden is other people. And that's really beautiful, Thomas. Thanks, Grant. Before our podcast, you said something along the lines of dopamine is short-term desire. And serotonin is long-term happiness. Yep. I'd like to discuss that idea a little bit more with you now. I don't think anybody can get past dopamine. Even if you reach nirvana to the extent that somebody can reach nirvana, you maybe your all your happiness comes from helping other people. You're the Buddha, you say. To live life is to have compassion for others. There's still a value there. Mm-hmm. And that value is still going to motivate you to do things in the world. And point of fact, you literally can't move without dopamine coursing through your brain. So, my question for you is, where do you find that balance between your brain being dopaminergic as it is, and also wanting to experience the present and experience other people in a way that's very healthy? This is the part where I ask, is this podcast rated PG-13? Just say whatever you want. Cool. So there are four F's of biology. <laughs> feeding, fighting, fl- uh, feeding, fighting, um, God, there's a third F, and then fucking, I mean, reproduction. Okay. And these four things are, as a result of dopaminergic circuitry, right? You have to eat. You have to move. You have to go defecate. These things are all dopaminergic. The problem is, is that it makes you feel a little nice to do those things. I like sex. Sex is great. Sex is nice. Sex is a dopamine rush. And a one-night stand sucks. Because once the sex is over, there's nothing left. 
I got my nut, your oob is there. Right? And it's the reason why Sam Smith in the song says, stay with me. He wants a deeper connection, but he's not going to get it. He's looking for it the wrong way. Humans intrinsically want the dopamine until it's over. And then they move on to the next dopamine. The reason why long-term happiness is serotonin modulated is that humans buying of themselves are social creatures. We like have social bonds, and that's modulated by serotonin, right? A relationship with your wife is a result of serotonin. There's this bond that's developed and maintained through the dopaminergic release of sex, through the dopaminergic release of eating, through the dopaminergic release of spending time together, holding hands, but the serotonin baseline has to exist for there to be baseline so people should still go out and find mountains to climb, still go out and pursue difficult things in their career and in their lives, but they won't be fully fulfilled if they don't have that community around them, is what you're saying. Yeah. If you're not focused on the things that actually bring happiness, health, wealth, and by wealth I don't mean like excessive amounts of money that you're throwing around, but enough to have your base needs met, enough that you can spend money, like we're having now, and on family, you're not going to be happy. And that family can mean different things to different people. Some people find their family in their neighborhood. Some people find their family, like my dad did, in a very, very traditional family. And some people find that family with spending time with their parents or their family at work. But if you don't build those close relationships, your life's going to be really terrible. Take, for example, Hewlett-Packard, the greatest company to ever have existed. They built the Silicon Valley. You can legit trace the lineage of every company that calls the Silicon Valley its home to Jim, pa Jim Hewlett David Packard. They Steve Jobs even worked for Hewlett-Packard. Yeah. And in fact, he had an internship there when he was a teenager. Yeah. Yeah. Why? Hewlett Packard was a family. Jim treated and Dave treated his employees like they would their, their brothers, their sisters, their daughters, their sons. They knew their names, their names of their kids, sometimes even the names of their dogs. They'd ask about them. You felt like you belonged, and many people did. One of the professors I took a course with at Grand Canyon University was the old vice president of Hewlett Packard from the founding all the way up until I think 2016 when he retired. He was a lifer. There were more lifers than there weren't. Belong. You said your mission was to be a paraclete? Paraclete. Yeah. Would you consider that a dopaminergic phenomenon to have a life mission like that? No, because there's a long-term relationship there. Sure, there's a long-term relationship between yourself and the people for whom you're a paraclete. At the same time, people often associate life purposes with the inclination to get out of bed in the morning, for instance. Oh, oh yes. Um, golly, what a great question. Yes, some mornings. 
times, and I don't feel great. I actually have the names of two or three of my closest friends who will come to me for advice on a regular basis. And I'll say, they've requested me help. Who am I to say no? And I might be Is the idea that you wouldn't have been able to help them that day if you didn't get out of bed? Yeah. Okay. There are literally people depending on you. Who am I to say no? Right. I used to ask the question because people would come and ask for my advice. You know, why? What's the point? And I was reading, and it was one of the Stoic philosophers who said, well, they need people. They chose me. They asked for me for something I can't get past. Powerful thing. Powerful thing. In my gratitude list, I don't tell these people very often, and I probably should. In my gratitude list, it pops up. Usually the first two or three things. People trust me. You mentioned stoicism. Don't want to ruin the moment here. Aside from Voltaire, who are some other philosophers that you enjoy? Stoics or not? Yeah. Recently, I read over Seneca. Great stuff. Marcus Aurelius, of course. A classic. And you can read over Socrates and Plato and get kind of an idea of some of the foundational ideas. Aristotle's fun from time to time. I like Nietzsche. Nietzsche's interesting. Nietzsche definitely writes from the ivory tower, and that's very purposeful. It's not meant for you. Nietzsche's fun. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Nothing survives from Socrates. Right, we just have the dialogues that Plato wrote. The dialogues Plato wrote. I mean, there's even a theory that like Socrates wasn't real. That he's uh, it's fake news. All of it. It's fake news. <laughs> it's fake news. Oh man, rip. Um, yeah. Sartar is interesting from time to time. Sartar. I haven't heard it pronounced that way yet. What do you? How would you pronounce it? Sart. Really. Now, to be fair, everybody I speak to about Sartre are Texan, so we all have our own Texan interpretations of what French sounds like. <laughs> Yikes, rip. You know, it's true, though. Um, I've also read over some of the uh, different religious texts over the years. One of my favorites is actually Jesus of Nazareth. I take the Gandhi approach. I love you, Jesus. I hate you, Christians. Come again? Mahatma Gandhi. Right, so you're saying, oh, he said this about... About Christianity. Okay. I love your Jesus. I hate your Christians. Yes, I agree with Gandhi. Some of the time, I certainly find myself despising things that Christians have done in the past and are doing now. It's hard not to. At the same time, you read the parables that Jesus spoke, and you can't help but feel deeply compelled by the man. It's no wonder so many people followed him. I love his brother, James. James calls you out. He doesn't let you sit in your front corner complacently. He often says things that are kind of um, highly provocative. Um, You say you'll show me your faith without works. I'll show you my faith by my works. The idea being that words are nice. Good for you. Actions speak louder than Do you have any favorite books of the Bible? Book of James is one of my favorites. Okay. 
It's actually the only one I still read. Fair enough. We've been reading Mark, Acts, and some of the letters from Paul, some of the Pauline epistles. Paulinian scriptures are always interesting. Paul, Paul comes across as kind of a jerk at times, and uh, that he does very purposeful. What gets me is how disorganized Christianity was for hundreds of years, mm-hmm. even into the fourth century. Playing it by ear, they were talking about, or they're discussing what should be in the canon, what shouldn't, what should be Christianity at its core. Yeah, I mean, you hear about the Council of Nicaea, and I mean, St. Jerome and Augustine went toe-to-toe. I mean, they legit, like, had a fist fight. And that's always interesting. Of course, then they write about how they love each other very, very much. It's very reminiscent of the uh, arguments that happen in the surgical halls. For those who aren't in the know, um, eh, uh, if you ever get a chance, you should go and try and see if you can watch uh, patient rounds at a hospital asked to shadow one of the doctors. And in morning conference, the trauma surgeons or the neurologists or the internal medicine doctors will talk about an interesting patient case. And they'll argue with each other as to what the diagnosis is and what the treatment should be. Um, Internal medicine doctors sound very erudite, right? They start using their $15 words, and then you're like, wow. Uh-huh, yep, 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 I recognize one of those words. Neurologists are, like, pointing at random pictures of brain scans. The surgeons, oh, oh, the surgeons, oh. Beautiful. They start screaming at each other. <laughs> Never before in my life have I seen such distinguished men acting like little children. And um, it got even funnier because one of the trauma surgeons at the center, uh, he, he calls himself an ogre. And so it was really funny when the ogre started quoting peer-reviewed literature. And I was like, the ogre is smart. The ogre is smart. Is this Shrek 5? <laughs> Shrek 5. Maybe Shrek 9. Yeah, Shrek 9? Shrek is a MD from John Hobson. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'd watch it. Bobby well stole me. <laughs> oh man. But it's it's interesting because it's the very same thing. I mean we we see academic debates, but it's nothing like they used to do. Right? Where they actually yell at each other because they care a lot. Um fun story, one of the most famous academic debates that's still ongoing to this day an academic debate that got way out of hand called the Protestant Reformation. Martin Luther was a professor of theology who went and nailed his 95 thesis, 95 points of argument, to the church door so he could get the attention of the Pope in Rome. It was an old practice. You would nail your thesis to the door of the professor's office. The problem was is the printing press had recently did he defend the theses when he nailed them? Was there like a little they, subtext on why yeah. he thought they were reasonable theses? Well, so the, the idea of these 95 points is that he actually explains them. You can go read the actual 95 theses today. It's available for free. That must have, that must have been quite the document. Mm-hmm. How did he nail it to the wall? It's only three, four pages. Okay. He's an efficient man. I'll give him that. Yeah. And 
he mailed it to the church's the church doors when the printing press was invented. So they made lots of copies, and people were like, "Yeah, the Pope sucks." Yeah. But the goal of what should have been the Diet of Worms would have been a Reformation reaction attack on church, saying like, "Hey, selling indulgences so you can get to heaven is bad. Don't do that." And instead, you had like the Protestant Reformation explosion of morals, and people were like, "Whoops, whoops." As my friend Matthias Carver likes to say, Oh, Martin Luther was the original shit poster. Yeah, yeah, he kind of was. Oops. How do you think, Thomas? Do you have an internal dialogue? Internal monologue? No, actually, that's really funny. I had this conversation the other day. So I didn't know that there was a difference between human brains where people had internal monologues until I had a conversation with my brother John. And he and I were talking, and he mentioned how he was like trying to solve the math puzzle in his head. And I was like, "Well, you know, you just do it." And he's like, "No, no, the, I have to think through it. I have to like walk through on my internal chalkboard." And I said, "Fuck, wait, what? Like, is there a little man in your head that solves problems on a chalkboard?" He's like, "Well, well, yeah, there's a little voice that talks." And I started making fun of him. Only to then Google it and find out that there's actually a difference between humans. That there's some that think with an internal monologue and those who do not. Do you know what the base rate is? Um, I wasn't able to find that online, but I think it's pretty dang close to 50-50. No way. Yeah. No way. Yeah. I would assume that it's much more skewed to my particular, uh, which is having the, having the voice. Yeah. Interesting. No, no. So you'll find that I talk a lot. Like a lot, a lot. You do. That's because there's nothing. I'm, I'm verbalizing what I'm thinking. There's no filter. I'm telling you what I'm actually thinking as I'm thinking it. Let's say you're not in a situation where you can talk, or you're not in a situation where you do talk. I imagine maybe you're just going about your day, cooking breakfast, making your community coffee over there. You're not talking to yourself, I presume, out loud. No, usually. So then how are you thinking about things? Oh, no. I'm playing with my hands. I'm doing something else. It's just a stream of emotions? Yeah. Thinking, I've found, has been an invaluable tool in just solving everyday problems. Whether it's an injury that I'm dealing with or whether I'm trying to parse out what exactly the dopamine circuitry is doing with a particular context. Or I'm doing some computer science problem. How do you work through problems then if you're not thinking through them verbally? So fun story. Um, the reason why I have as many people who come to me for help is when I started at Grand Canyon University when I was 18 years old, I would write out my, my thought processes for understanding a concept on the whiteboard. And I would walk myself through it, trying to figure out where the error was. Other people started coming to me and started tutoring them as a result of me walking through my own thought process. Next thing I know, I was tutoring half the school. And my number leaked. And so people would call me at random hours of the night asking for free tutorial help. Because I was just walking through the process. I've been tutoring people as long as I've been learning in an academic setting. This is fascinating to me. Have you tried to 
just engage a voice in your head? Yeah, I mean, I did when my brother told me about it. Right? Like, kind of like you might take a sock puppet and go, Hey, brother, how are you doing? But it doesn't last very long. When you read a book, do you have a voice in your head that goes through the words? No. No, so how is the meaning communicated to you? You see little pictures. It's like hallucinating. Oh, cool. You see pictures as you read. <laughs> I don't. I very, very rarely visualize what I read, especially if it's a technical concept. No, that's why, like, the I tell, I used to tell my students when I taught anatomy and physiology, go touch the cadaver. There's no way on earth you will be able to visualize this appropriately in 3D space if you don't go touch it. I don't make them hold it. I don't make them use a probe. I don't make them use their fingers. I'm like, stick your finger where the actual... Uh, anal opening is so you can feel the tonicity of the actual sphincter. Grab the pylorus of the stomach. You can feel that muscle. That's what's grinding up your food. Once you feel it, you never forget it. I used to, I had a model kit that I bought for organic chemistry. I think I gave it to Ian. I have another model kit. Um, <laughs> Ian's a black hole. That's uh, true. Love him to death. Oh, yeah. yes. Well, it's good for me because I'm going to go home and ask him about some of these things. Hopefully he has that book on your anatomy. Yeah. Um, and I play with it. I used, I would build a, all the organic chemistry things that I wanted to look at. And I would look at them in 3D space. And once I built it once, I could envision it in my head. Let's say you have an argument with a sibling. Um, it doesn't seem like you argue too much with John, but let's suppose you did. No, we, we, we argue all the time. We actually have academic debates. Okay. Well, I'm imagining something a little bit more emotional, but this might serve the purpose well. Let's say that you had an academic debate with John coming up, and you wanted to think through what you were going to say to him. What might that look like? I had a conversation with somebody else about this particular academic debate. I walk them through what my thought process is. And then they ask questions, and then I modulate what my thought process is. To be fair, that's probably more effective than walking through it in your own head. I mean, you heard me talk about my pickups paper and my mongoose paper. I was telling people about the mongoose paper for months. I finally wrote it after seven months of talking about it in an afternoon. Because I'd finally gotten everything laid out. What if you have a deep personal problem that you're struggling with? Like, I, I imagine... That whenever you were first diagnosed with autism, you had to ask yourself, well, what do I do about this? How do I build social skills? Or what should my response be to this diagnosis? Did you have an internal dialogue about that? Did you write about it? Or did you just talk to people about it? Okay. How did you parse something out that was so difficult? Do you want the real answer or the correct one? Give me the real one. I broke down into tears and I said it was a broken toy. I didn't recover from that. went and I ran a failure assessment as to where I was busted as a human and went looking for what I could do to fix it. I said, I can't read social cues. That's impossible. But I can work on sarcasm. So I started watching um, the really, really shitty um, sitcoms. And every time there would be a laugh track, I would rewind and play it again. Again. And then 
play it again, but I finally understood what it was about Melissa that was funny. It's the only place I knew that I could find sarcasm. I watched through uh, videos on emotional intelligence done by the School of Life and other YouTubers to try and gain a better idea of your perspective. What is the other person thinking and why? Um, most recently, I went and I took an additional month on my palliative care skills so that I had to learn what it was like to properly express emotions. Now I feel emotions. I feel them really strongly. Um, one of the when I was on pediatrics, they asked uh, what your feeling was when you saw people suffering, and I was like, uh, "This is really hard to explain, but I get this weird stomach cramp and I feel my testicles, you know, like cinch up my body." Turns out that's what Jesus of Nazareth felt. He felt the stirring of the soul, and the word for soul is regret. Jesus was probably autistic. Thank you for sharing that, Thomas. I'm going to go back to, just because I'm really trying to dig up the differences in autism processes right now, that moment whenever you decided that you needed to go learn what the School of Life had to offer on YouTube. Did you say to yourself, like, this is, this is something that I need to do? Like, like in my mind, I would have thought, okay, I have this goal that I'm trying to learn. I will go and I will watch these YouTube videos for that. These are like actual words that I would say in my head. For you, is it more of just like an emotion? Like you, mm-hmm. you have the desire to do that thing and maybe does it come with images? No, I just do it. You just do it. I, I recently was telling someone, uh, who was it? I only do the things I like and nothing I hate. And so I've decided that this is the thing I like. And now I'm going to do this. That's all I've asked for. So, you'll often see me position my body in certain ways and do certain things just because I went and I learned as much as I could as they could about proximity. I read every book on the subject. About proximity? Proximity. The way that positioning of the body or of the room changes the intended message. Do you have any recommendations on that? Um, any books that come to mind? It's harder to explain with books. I highly recommend just Googling proximate videos. That'll get you the like actual position because there's really lots of pictures. When it comes to social skills, imitation, I think, is one of the best ways to, to pick it up. That at least has been my experience as somebody without autism, but still very much an introvert. But I spelled that all kinds of wrong. E-R-O. Yeah, I was right. I was very wrong. All right, Thomas, I think we're going to close it here. Thank you for being the first guest on my podcast. Yeah, thank you for having me, Joe.